That is hard to believe what Pastor Greg said, and I've been thinking about that, that this church is almost 14 years old. You could look at pictures that didn't have a single gray hair, <laughs> believe it or not. Started in the Myers family living room over here off of Seabold Way in Roseville. We had three kids at the time. We've doubled our money since then. Peyton was only, our oldest was only five. And in a few months, he's heading off to lineman school. Brady was four. And next month, we'll be touring colleges in Kentucky and Tennessee with him. Jackson was two. And he is now better than me at golf. <laughs> Not that that says much. We didn't even have our youngest three kids. Now Blaze is almost a teenager. Avery is a young lady. And Reed is seven years old. And now here we are today. And while I plan to continue ministering in whatever ways God would allow me, mostly through writing, I expect, to still encourage God's people and helping them to understand and to apply the grace of God. That said, my time of vocational ministry, it has come to an end. And it is going to draw to a close in the next hour. So I have thought quite a bit as this winds down, what would be the best way to end? I thought about presenting all of you with a sculpture of my face today <laughs> that you could keep in the entryway. I was thinking the table right there in the middle. But it's not completed yet. <laughs> I thought about, I thought it'd be cool to do like a dramatic mic drop at the end and just let go, drop the mic, and then slowly back out the back door, maybe a fog machine, something like that. But this is like one of those price of right microphones that it's just, I don't think it would really, you know, get the feel I'm looking for. I would never do either of those things. And the reason I would never do either of those things is because this is not about me. But this has never been about me. I'm just me. It hasn't even been about any of you. This has been about Jesus Christ. Christ is the center of this church. So I'll bring our pastoral relationship to a close, doing the same thing I've done every Sunday by opening up God's word to 
put him and his truth front and center, right where it belongs. The very first sermon was on July 13th, 2008, and it was from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and our last sermon together will be today, February 27th, 2022, from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. But first, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, you are faithful, and you've been faithful to answer this prayer every Sunday. So we ask it again, that you would, as we open up your word by your Holy Spirit, teach us, move in our hearts so that we would know you and love you more. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, if you're using one of the Church Bibles we have here, we are still on page 920. There are two parts in this text. Part 1 is verses 10 through 20, and it contains Paul's final exhortation to the Ephesians. And then part 2 is verses 21 through 24. And it contains Paul's final greetings for the Ephesians. So let's start by looking into Paul's final exhortation. He summarizes it in verse 11. He gives the reason for it in verse 12. And then the resources to do it in verses 14 through 20. So let's begin with Paul's summary of his exhortation. Look with me at verse 10. It begins with the word, finally. Finally. Here is the last thing Paul writes to the Ephesians. Here is his last exhortation. And what is it? Be strong. That is one of the most repeated exhortations in the Bible. Be strong. Don't be weak. Don't be a coward. Be courageous. Don't shrink back. Be brave. Be strong. So many examples of courage this past week coming from Ukraine. Like the young man who manually detonated the explosives on the bridge to slow down the Russian invasion. Courage and strength. Christian, your Family needs you to be strong. Your friends need you to be strong. Your church needs you to be strong. Your life, the life that God has called you to live, it requires strength. 
You cannot do the life that God has called you to live unless you are strong. So Paul says, and the other authors say, God says over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament, be strong. Paul goes on, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So this strength does not come from within. This strength comes from without. There is strength that comes from digging deep within, but that supply of strength that you have within you, and it may be significant, but that supply of strength within you is relatively low compared to the strength that is available to you in Christ. So depending on your maturity and your personality and your life experience, you, you may independently have the potential to be very strong. But as a Christian... As a Christian, if you draw your strength from Christ, you can be as strong as it is humanly possible to be. And keep in mind, Paul is going to tell us exactly how to draw that strength when we get to verse 14. But for now, Paul is just summarizing his parting admonition. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God, more on that in verse 14, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he repeats it in verse 13, look, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand is just another way of saying be strong. So in case it's not yet clear, here is Paul's exhortation boiled down. Be strong in the Lord, or stand firm in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord by putting on the armor of God. That's the exhortation. Now, what about the why? What is the reason for this admonition? And that is what Paul describes next in verse 12. He introduced the reason at the end of verse 11 when he said that, be strong, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, but he elaborates in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Christians who are in Christ are in a war zone. It may not always feel like that, but the reality is that Christians, 
those who are in Christ, to be in Christ is to be in a war zone. We've seen lots of images. Many of you have seen lots of images this past week of an actual physical war zone. But this war zone that Paul's talking about, though it's just as dramatic, it's spiritual. It's not physical, it's spiritual. It's not against, Paul said, flesh and blood. It is against, and here are the enemies, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's against the cosmic powers over darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. It is a spiritual battle that doesn't claim bodies, it claims souls. It is a spiritual battle that claims souls. And Paul is essentially saying only the strong survive. So be strong. Because as Peter said in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful for your adversary, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, I have been in this church long enough to see people profess faith in Christ who are now far from Him. I've been a part of this church long enough to see spiritual casualties. To see a spiritual war zone in marriages, in families, in some of your own lives. Well, what happened? Well, some of those people, they appear to be casualties of this war that Paul is describing. And you and I would be fools to not take his words to heart. Paul is saying, you won't be able, you won't be able to stand against the devil unless you take this exhortation seriously. Like he's not just saying it, he means it. You won't be able to stand against the devil if you don't take this exhortation seriously. You are no match for the devil. We can talk proud and we can talk arrogantly. I have in my past, but the reality is that you are no match for the devil. He is much stronger than you are. He's definitely a lot smarter than you are. You will buckle and give in to temptation. You will forsake your first love. 
You are not better than King David or Moses or Abraham or Samson. So if you play this proudly, if that's how you do this life, if you play this proudly, you will be overcome by darkness. You will be overcome by darkness and you will be overcome by the spiritual forces of evil. No matter how strong and capable you think you are independently apart from God, you will not survive. So be strong in the Lord. Be strong not in your own strength, but be strong in the strength of his might. Okay, you might be thinking, I get it. I can't be self-reliant. I can't be depending on my own strength. If I am, I will fail. But how exactly do I do that? It's one thing to just say that. It's another thing to understand how to do it. Okay, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. Now, how do I actually draw from and exert his strength? What does that look like? And that's exactly what Paul works out with a picture in verses 14 through 20. Right before these verses, you'll remember in verse 13, Paul said, take up the whole armor of God. That's a metaphor. It's not literal. But that is the metaphor that Paul uses to help us picture, to help us envision, okay, what does this look like to be strong in the Lord? The Greek word for armor he uses is panoplia, and it refers to all the equipment of a fully armed soldier. They would have a Roman soldier in mind, likely. We might have a modern soldier in mind. But you can imagine, Paul would want you to, to have a fully armed soldier in mind. This is what they would put on. This is what they would take with them so that they could stand strong in battle. And if they didn't take this with them, then they could not stand strong in battle. So he's going to list off six pieces of equipment that Christ has given us. This is how it's his strength and not our own. Here are six pieces of equipment that Christ has given us so that we can be strong and stand firm in him. Number one, belt of truth. Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Veritas is the Latin word for truth. I can remember trying to think with some of you 
What will be the name of this new church? And I had some very high priorities at the time. I wanted it to sound cool. It's funny because I don't speak Latin. And we wanted it to embody who we are as a church and what we valued as a church. So veritas is the Latin word for truth. And so people would ask, what does veritas mean? Actually, they would say, what does veritas mean? No one pronounces it right. That sounds like a bag of chips. What does veritas mean? And we, or I would say, it means truth. And we named our church that because we love the truth. We love the truth of God's word, especially the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what I would say anytime somebody would ask me why we named our church what we named it. God has given us truth. We don't speculate. We don't have to speculate about who God is or about who we are we know what is the meaning and purpose of our lives. We, we know how it is that we ought to live to please God. And we fasten this truth around our waist. We believe truth. We think truth. We hold to truth. We speak truth. John chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. Second part of verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is very important. This righteousness is not our righteousness. This is not our good deeds. And the way you know that is, remember, this is not our armor. This is God's armor. This is his equipment. This is his armor. He gives it to us and we put it on. This is not our righteousness. God has given us righteousness. Christ has imputed his righteousness to us. That means that the perfect life that Jesus lived has been credited to us as if we lived a perfect life. And as Christians in battle... We must put this righteousness on. We must remember it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he, 
made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Number three, the shoes of readiness. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You could put all this armor on. You could put all of this armor on, but you are not ready. You're not ready to go anywhere without shoes on your feet. This is basic. And the shoes, the shoes, according to Paul, are the gospel of peace. This is foundational. This is a starting point. You are not going anywhere. You're not ready to go anywhere without the gospel of peace. Without knowing the good news that Jesus came, lived, suffered, died, rose from the dead in your place, so that you could be reconciled or made at peace with God. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you, Paul said, as of first importance. This is most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Number four, more equipment, the shield of faith. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What do we do with this gospel? What do we do with this truth? What do we do with this righteousness that we have been given? We trust Christ. We rely on Him. We take up our shield of faith. And in taking up our faith, in trusting and relying on Christ, we are protected from the flaming darts of the evil one. What are these flaming darts from our enemy? What is it that our enemy shoots our way? What, what is his ammunition that threatens to destroy us? Lies? Accusations, I think even more powerful a weapon that our enemy wields against us are his half-truths. Half-truths like, you are guilty. You are 
of failure. You can't do this. Well, the problem is that all those things are true. I am guilty. I'm a failure. I can't do this. But for the Christian, that's not the whole truth. The half truth is you are guilty. You can't do this. You are a failure. And the Christian responds, yes. Also, Romans 8.38, I am more than a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror through Christ who loves me. So my guilt is not the final word. My failures are not the final word. My incompetence is not the final word. Christ is for me. And if he is for me, then no one, not even the devil, can be against me. And so that, saying that, thinking that, if you believe that, when you do that, you're exercising faith. That's what you're doing. Yes, that's true. I am those things, guilty as charged. But I am forgiven through Christ who loves me. And so I'm sorrowful over these things. I want to seek forgiveness over these things. I want to repent of these things. But they don't come even close to jeopardizing my security in God. That's the shield of faith. And it extinguishes those lies, those accusations, and those half-truths. I mean, Paul is giving us this visual, profound picture to help us understand what it actually looks like to be strong in the Lord. And he's not done. Number five, you have a helmet, the helmet of salvation, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. My kids cannot ride their bike to the mailbox, and they know this, without hearing Papa, if he's in town, saying, hey, where's your helmet? Four of them, including a 19 and a 17-year-old, walked with Papa to church today, and I wouldn't be surprised if he wanted them to wear a helmet <laughs> just walking here. Now, it's a little bit understandable. Your helmet is very important, and I, I think if, if I'm a soldier and I'm in a physical battle, 
defensively, I do see my helmet as the most important thing that I put on because my head is the most vulnerable part of my body. So the helmet that we put on, Paul says, is the helmet of salvation. Our great protection in battle is our salvation. We will not be lost. 1 John 5.12 Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Here's that helmet. Here is that assurance that you may know as you go into this battle that you have eternal life and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And the number six, one more. And it is the sword of the Spirit. Verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. A sword. The only part of this armor that is used offensively. The only part of this armor that is used for attack. And this sword may not be what you picture. The word used here describes a short sword. It was more of a dagger, is what we might call it. And it was brought out and used not defensively, but offensively in close combat. That's the kind of sword that's being talked about. And what is, according to Paul, what is the only weapon as Christians that we carry? It is the Word of God. It is the Bible. That's our weapon. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I think the rest of these verses in this first part, verses 18 through 20, I think they're closely connected to verse 17. And you can look and see if you feel the same way about it. But they are describing, it seems to me, what we do with this weapon. This is what we do with this weapon, this sword, which is the word of God. So let me read them with you with verse 17. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here's what I think Paul is saying. 
armed with the word of God, prayer is our primary tactic in spiritual warfare. Prayer. Ultimately, as we we put on this armor of God that Paul has been describing, as we put on this armor of God, the strength of Christ is supplied to us through prayer. We pray for ourselves, for sure, but Paul has in mind here our prayer for one another. We're praying for ourselves, of course. No one needs to be told to do that. But here Paul has in mind, as we take up the word of God, that we are praying for others. In in fact, now that he's done with his exhortation, Paul inserts a request. You see in verse 19, pray also for me. As you take up this sword, the word of God, and pray all the time, would you pray also for me? that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. His final request after his final exhortation is that the Ephesians would pray for him. By the way, that would be my final request from all of you. Would you please pray for me? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for my wife? Would you pray for our kids? I'd be so blessed if you would do that. You can't overrate prayer. There's nothing that you could do that would be more powerful and for sure nothing that you could do that would be more pleasing to me than to pray. So how do we stand strong in the strength of God's might? We put on the armor of God. We take God's truth and his righteousness and his good news and we trust in him. We remember our salvation and we take up his word and we pray. After all, this enemy that we face, Christ has defeated him. Colossians 2.15, he, that is Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And now here is Paul's conclusion. First, some closing remarks where Paul introduces a good friend, Tychicus, who was going to come from him to them with updates and with encouragement, verse 21 and 22, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister and the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you, this 
for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And then Paul's last two verses, his last words to the Ephesians, which are a final benediction, verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That is Paul's closing benediction. It is his prayer of blessing for those in Ephesus who loved Jesus. And so to those of you who love Jesus, which I bet is almost all of you, young and old, to all of you who love Jesus, I pray the same thing. What else would I hope for you? What else would I pray for you? It's perfect. It's perfect. I pray for all of you who love Jesus exactly, exactly what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that you would know these four blessings. I have nothing better. I have nothing more significant, nothing more important than to pray that you would know these blessings in your life. Peace. That you would know peace between you and God. Love. That you would know the love of Christ. Faith. That you would rely on Christ as the Savior in your life. And grace. The favor of God you can't make it through this life without. May you be blessed with peace, with love, with faith, and with grace for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Amen. In Luke chapter 22, Christ shared a final Passover meal with his disciples, one that we continue today. And when the hour came, Christ reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for 
I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you're visiting with us today, you are invited to take communion. If you are a baptized believer, you're here, you've heard the gospel, you believe the gospel, you've turned from your sin, you've placed your faith in Christ, you've committed yourself to him and to his people. So you are committed to a local church, whether it's this or another one that preaches the same gospel you've heard here today. If that's you, you are welcome to take communion. We'll have leaders up front to serve you. We ask you take the emblems, the bread, and the juice, and then return to your seat. And please wait for the rest of us, and we'll take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We are thankful that you have rescued us from our sin. We're thankful, God, that you are everything that we need. That everything could be taken from us in this life. And we would still have everything in you. So, God, you have made us strong. Help us now to be strong, to draw from this strength, to exert this strength that is in you by putting on this armor that you've given us, that we would remember your truth, that we would remember the righteousness that has been imputed to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would believe and profess and proclaim the gospel being assured of our salvation, that we would faithfully trust you, taking up your word and praying for one another. And now, God, be glorified, we pray, as we slow down and act out this drama through communion of what you have done to reconcile us to yourself. All praise to you and glory and honor in Jesus' name, amen.